1 Thessalonians 2 is all about ministry. We've considered already throughout the, the chapter Paul's ministry motivation and his ministry mindset. These concepts, as they relate to Paul, were also extended to the church in Thessalonica. As they emulated Paul's heart for ministry, their own lives and their own church became in many ways an example of what Paul was teaching. We applied these principles to our own ministries as well and were reminded that oftentimes the greatest hindrance to our own ability to minister as the Lord would desire us to minister is rooted not in our ability, but in our pride, in our selfishness, in our unwillingness to yield to God's will and God's word and God's way. We just sang the song, let him have his way with thee. If you would desire to be victorious, if you would desire to find uh, out what God can do with you, it's, it's a matter of you yielding to him. It's a matter of you allowing him to have his way with you. As we think about the ministries of our own church and the ministries that you can take part in or that you do take part in or, or that you might in the future take part in. And as you think about these things, you, you can recognize as we've looked throughout this uh, chapter that um, so much of, of service to the Lord is not necessarily about what we are doing, but about how we're doing it, why we're doing it. It's about our mindset. It's about our motivation. It's about whether or not you're doing it for your own praise or for the praise of God. It's about whether or not you're actually pouring your hearts into the ministry that you're in for the sake of God's Word and, and God's will, or are you pouring uh, for some ulterior motive? Are you pouring yourself out into the ministry, or, or are you doing what you're doing for some un- ulterior motive? And this evening, um, we're going to talk about the battle of the ministry. See, because as we minister, we, we, we contend with our flesh. Every day in ministry, we contend with our flesh. We don't want to do it. We're not getting the accolades uh, that we feel we ought to get. Nobody appreciates us. So we're undercompensated. Whatever the case may be, we're battling our flesh in that regard. But it's not just a battle against self, is it? We spoke two weeks ago in our Sunday morning service about the spiritual realm. And one of the points we emphasized was that our battle is not against people, not even inherently against ideologies, but against the demonic spiritual forces that are compelling these people and ideologies, deceiving these people that are promoting these ideologies. We often call it the spirit of Antichrist, and we'll talk about this as we get a little bit farther in First Thessalonians. And so it's not just about you fighting yourself and your flesh and your, your own pride and your own self-righteousness and selfishness and these sorts of things in ministry, but it's also a spiritual battle that we fight. And, and we know this, but do we know this? It's been a weird weekend for my wife and I. Um, my daughters are acting a little bit strangely this evening. I can't exactly explain it to you. But I wouldn't be surprised if there's something happening um, spiritually that's bringing about distractions, um, that's seeking to um, confuse, frustrate. We all have seen it before. I've talked with many of you about those things before. It's Sunday morning, right? And you're getting ready to go and, and, and 
not just listen, but, but find some means to minister. Things don't go well. Things go wrong that wouldn't normally go wrong. And all of a sudden you realize that there's probably some sort of spiritual battle at work. And you need to start praying. This is not uncommon necessarily as long as we're willing to see it. And so let's pick up our um, passage this evening. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We'll read verses 13 through 20. Paul says, For this cause also we uh, thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God which effectually worketh also in you that believe. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us as they please not God and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved, to fill up their sin alway. For the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For ye are our glory and joy. And as Paul sought to minister to the church at Thessalonica, he was keenly aware of the spiritual battle that was raging over them. It's a spiritual battle that we'll talk about this evening. And in doing so, remind ourselves that it is not only our flesh that we contend with as we serve in the ministry, but also Satan and his demonic servants that seek at every turn to hinder the ministry of God. So we pick up in verse 13. We read it already with the link between Paul's ministry and the church of Thessalonica. Paul has described his ministry motivations and methods as being for God's glory alone, completely apart from whether or not uh, um, men would be pleased. So whether or not uh, men are pleased with what he's doing or how he's doing it, whether or not men are pleased with his particular motivations, none of that mattered to him. What mattered to him is that God was pleased with what he said. God was pleased with what he did and God was pleased with why he did it. Paul then described his, uh, the mindset of his ministry, which was one of absolute self-denial for the purpose of seeing men and women in the church become all that God desired them to become. He would set aside anything in this life, any liberty that he had for God's people. And today in verse 13, Paul rejoices that just as he sought with every fiber of his being to ensure that the Thessalonians saw only God in his ministry, he rejoices that they received it in that way, in that manner, that his teaching was from God and that it carried the weight of God's expectations upon it. He says, I did everything I could to make sure that my teaching and preaching and motivations were God focused and God-pleasing, and you received it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. See, here's the thing about ministry and about teaching. It's one of the greatest blessings in this life when you find a Bible teacher or a minister that you can actually trust. 
This doesn't mean you agree with everything that he says, but as a whole, you feel confident that you can rely upon him to the extent that you are able to actually put down your own defenses, though, of course, never your discernment, and allow yourself to actually be challenged, to be pushed, to be um, um, motivated by what he says. It's when you're in this place of trust that, that you're able to grow the best because even when you don't completely like what the preacher has to say or even necessarily completely agree with him, you trust him enough to take what he says about God's word and to think about it, to ponder it, to meditate upon it, consider whether he's right or wrong or whether it's just possible that you are wrong. But this can become a problem if one becomes so trusting of his teacher or places so much admiration upon his teacher that one begins to trust the teacher's words rather than trusting in him to bring you God's words. It's like this. If you are here to hear Pastor Wickler so that your loyalty is to me or to what I say, and your faith is in my words and the credibility of my words, then the credibility, then, then my words themselves, your faith is only as deep as my credibility. Your faith is only as deep as what I say. When I fail or when I'm wrong, everything that I've said falls and fails and it's quite possible you do as well. Likewise, if my words rely upon the credibility of a, of a, a human philosophy or of a human method or of a human ideology, if my words are nothing more than spouting back to you commentaries, spouting back to you um, thoughts of, of other men, uh, ideologies of other men, if that's all I'm doing, then your faith will be rooted not in God's Word, but in those philosophies, in those methods, in those ideologies, in those men. And when those things fail, then everything that you've learned fails as well. But if my emphasis as a teacher is not upon me, but rather upon God's Word, and if your loyalty as a listener is not upon the pastor, but upon God's Word, then something special happens. As I teach, and as you listen... You aren't receiving what I'm telling you. You are receiving what God is telling you. You aren't as interested in the nuances of Pastor Wickler's delivery or Pastor Wickler's message or Pastor Wickler's illustrations as much as you are interested in finding out what Pastor Wickler is trying to tell you about the Bible. And then you're taking what the Bible says and you are translating that into your application. You're translating that into your lifestyle. You're translating that into your priority. As you're receiving what God is telling you, you accept it as God's Word and you give to those words the gravity and obedience that they are due. And then, that's when God's Word has the free reign to work itself in your life in a manner that God has promised it will. Because your loyalty and obedience is not to your teacher, to a philosophy or to a system, but to God, to His Word, and to His truth. And this brings joy to the heart of any true minister when he sees, God, when he sees those to whom he ministers 
loyal to God and to His Word and not loyal to Him inherently. Because I know that when you are loyal to God's Word, number one, I don't have to sell myself. I don't have to be something I'm not. I don't have to change myself for you. Because your interest in me is as a teacher of the Word of God, both in word and in testimony. And secondly, it brings true joy to the heart of the minister because I know that I don't have to manipulate you. I don't have to play fast and loose with the truth in order to get you to do what I want you to do because what I want you to do is nothing more than, uh, than an extension of what God wants you to do. And if God wants you to do it, then I can trust that God will do it. And I don't have to worry about that. I'm a delivery man. I don't have to be God's enforcer. And Paul expresses his thankfulness that this church, the church of Thessalonica, in hearing and preaching, um, in hearing the preaching of Paul, excuse me, received it as God's word and gave it that priority. Because when we truly receive God's word with humility and with gladness, then God is able to do amazing things in us. If you know God's word, but it hasn't changed you, rest assured it's not because God is unwilling or unable to change you, but because you are unwilling or unable through your own pride to receive it and to be changed as you ought. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 tells us this, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work and you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul expressed his confidence in God's ability to do a good work in this passage that God will continue to perform a good work in those who are reading and obeying His Word until the day that He returns. But are we allowing Him to do that work? Hebrews chapter 4, 11 and 12, uh, the writer of Hebrews tells us, Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For the Word of God is quick, and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and the marrow, and is the discerner of, of thoughts and the intents of the heart. We're warned here that to whatever degree we fail, to whatever degree we fall, we fail or we fall because we have approached God's Word in unbelief instead of in belief. And as we fight this battle, we're fighting our flesh, but we're also fighting a spiritual battle. And the very foundation of the spiritual battle is in unbelief. How far is our faith willing to go? How far are we willing to stretch? How far are we willing to place ourselves in God's care? Are we willing to trust Him implicitly? Are we willing to trust Him wholly? Are we willing to throw ourselves upon Him? Or are we just dipping our toe into the water of faith? You've been there at a pool, right? There's a couple of ways to enter a pool or a lake. Depending on personality, different people enter a pool or a lake a different way. I'm, I'm an all-in kind of a guy when I get in. I might put my toe into the water, but I tend not to because I know what happens if I put my toe in the water. I'm not going to want to get in. So what do I do? I back up. I run. 
and I jump, and I splash, and I go, <gasps> and then it gets better, usually. Sometimes not. Usually it gets better. But then there are those that do the toe, and then kind of the foot, and then the other foot, and then they're waiting, and <gasps> you know, when they get to the knees, and then <gasps> yeah, at, at each milestone, it's just, it's, it's just another... A step of having to warm up to it and, and it's not pleasant and it prolongs and, and uh, yeah, you may end up getting there, but, but see, how do we approach God's Word? Are we the kind of people that have to kind of dip our toe into God's Word and, and feel it out and see, okay, is, is that true? Is that going to work for me? Alright, now I'll put my foot in. Okay, God, you've got my foot now. What can you do with my foot? Okay, okay, now, now you've got two feet, God. What can you do with my two feet? Okay, I'm into my knees now, God. What can you do with me now? And God says, the, the degree to which I can bless you, the degree to which I can use you, the degree to which you will be found uh, receiving the promises of God's Word spiritually in ministry and such is the degree to which you are willing to trust me. As we fight the spiritual battle, we labor to enter into God's rest, lest any man fall in unbelief. Verse 14 of 1 Thessalonians 2 tells us that as this church received the word of God as they ought with meekness and obedience, allowing the scriptures to perform its great renewing work in our hearts, the path of their lives began to take a very similar road to the path of the church in Judea when they received the Word of God in full belief. And this path was the path of persecution. Paul says in verse 14, Ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus, and ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. Persecution, suffering, death at the hands of their own countrymen, for the simple reason that they had accepted by faith the teachings of God's Word and had fully invested themselves in obeying those words. No, not every church that Paul visited found themselves facing uh, martyrdom. Not every church that Paul visited even found themselves facing persecution. There were, uh, without a doubt, some churches along the, the path of Paul's journeys that would hear about Thessalonica and would say, wow, that church is really going through something awful. And these men and these women had received by faith the Word of God as well, but it just so happens that their culture, that their society, that their city was not as antagonistic to the Word of God. Not every culture, not every society, not every people group responds to the truth of God's Word with open displays of violence and hostility. But the church of Thessalonica was in an area where their reception and obedience to God's Word put them in the crosshairs of their society in much the same way that the church at Jerusalem was being actively hunted and destroyed by the leaders of the Jews. But what Paul reminds them, if rather subtly in verse 15, is that as those who are being persecuted for their faith, they really are in good company. And isn't that the truth? That they were in good company. 
Not only are they in the company of the church of Judea, but they are also in the company of the prophets of God and of Jesus Christ himself, all of whom were also persecuted and put to death for their loyalty to the word of God and to the truth of God's word. Elijah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all these men, great men of the faith, tremendous prophets of God, were rejected by their own nation because they told their nation the truth. In Acts 7.52, Stephen asks the leaders of the Jews, which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers. You've destroyed the just one. You've killed the Messiah. But which of the prophets of Messiah did you not kill? All the ones that told of Messiah's coming. Which ones of them were not killed by you? And of course, Stephen here in Acts 7 was on his way to his own martyrdom as he spake these words. They killed him for telling the truth. Jesus Christ Himself promised it. John 15, beginning in verse 18, we'll read through verse 25. Jesus said, If the world hates you, know that it hated Me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love His own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted Me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin, but now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hateth me hateth my father also. If I had not done among them the works which none other man did, They had not had sin, but now have they both seen and hated both me and my father. But this cometh to pass that the word might be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Jesus Christ says, when a man hates you, no, he's not hating you. He's hating me. Likewise, when a man receives you, know that he's not actually receiving you. He's receiving me. So whether they hate you or whether they accept you, It's not about you. It's about your testimony. It's about Jesus Christ in you. So just as you can be confident that when a person accepts Christ by your teaching, they're not accepting you, they're accepting Christ if they bear that fruit. You can be confident that when a man hates you and spits on you and antagonizes you and says all manner of awful things about you or kills you for your faith, they aren't interested in you as much as they're interested in rejecting Christ. They reject you because they reject Him. They persecute you because they persecuted Him. They kill you because they killed Him. The actions of this world against the light of this world, Jesus Christ, reveal that there is no physical end to which wicked men will go to silence the truth of God from shining its light into the darkness of their hearts. And that's what God was telling the Thessalonian believers, that they were in very good company in their sufferings. The church in Judea, the prophets of old, their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ Himself, all of them who suffered the same fate, for Christ. And do you see how that's a spiritual battle? It's not a physical battle. 
They weren't fighting the physical ideologies of the day. They weren't being persecuted specifically because they were teaching against idolatry or teaching against promiscuity or teaching these sorts of things. Those were the, the symptoms of the cause. Those were the external manifestations of the persecution. But the persecution happened because men and women were rejecting Christ, hated Christ, hated His message, hated His Holy Spirit's conviction in their hearts, hated the light that shines into their hearts. It's a spiritual battle. Paul describes the heart of these type of people in verse 16. Men who would seek to forbid the salvation of others. Men who are not just content to defy God's own, uh, God in their own hearts and lives, but seek also to ensure that all other men defy God in their hearts as well. These sort of men have always been around. Men who are not content simply to not believe in God themselves, but are at the front line, at the tip of Satan's spear, seeking to dissuade and discourage and shame others into refusing God and His Word as well. We've talked about him a couple of times uh, offhand lately. Men like Richard Dawkins. A man who is not content simply to blaspheme God on his own, but is actively involved in encouraging the world. And specifically, in most recent years, actively involved in encouraging those who are in the church, not necessarily believers, but those who are in the church, religious people, into open blasphemy of God and into open blasphemy of His, of, uh, His Word. Men like those and women in the Freedom from Religious Foundation and the American Civil Liberties Union, whose goal it is to remove at any cost the light of God's Word from any public forum, this is not them hating you. This is them hating the one who you serve. We've talked about that. And the Bible says that in doing so, in doing these things, they fill up their sins. That their day before the judgment seat of God will be one of fear and trembling in a very special way. Not, not simply because they have rejected and unbelief God's Word, but because they have likewise sought and led others into that rejection as well. Paul had even felt the sting of wicked men upon his own ministry to the church in Thessalonica. In verse 17, Paul recalls his own separation from the church. If you remember from our book sermon, Paul had to leave the city early because of the threat upon their own lives. And Paul states in verse 17 that while they were removed from the church physically, the heart of Paul had never left the church. The heart of Paul and his companions for the success of the church was never diminished. And they tried very hard to reunite with the church and to help them gain a further understanding of God and of His Word. But verse 18 tells us that they were hindered when he time and again sought to come to the church. Now, we don't know what these hindrances were necessarily, what circumstances arose that kept Paul away from Thessalonica, but we do know to, unto whom Paul attributed these hindrances. He says at the end of verse 18, but Satan 
hindered us. Paul admits something that we need to be reminded of again this evening. That the battle is not spiritual. I mean, excuse me, physical. The battle is spiritual. As Paul spoke of the wicked men that filled up their own sin by forbidding Paul and his companions to speak into the Gentiles, he didn't see these men themselves as the enemy, but rather their sinful hearts compelled by deceit and lies fed by Satan. These deceits and lies compelling them in their actions. But notice the perspective here. It's not to say that sinful men are off the hook. We can't say that because we're fighting a spiritual battle that men are off the hook so that they can just look at you, smile, and say, well, the devil made me do it. Right? Men are not off the hook for their choices. They are not free from all responsibility. Certainly, it is without a doubt we know that it's Satan's tactics, his philosophies, his ideologies that compel the rebellion of this world. But it is still the rebellious heart of man that rejoices in the evil that is all around them. Satan has not filled men's hearts with sin. Man has filled his own heart through his flesh with sin. Satan's role is to deceive our evil hearts into thinking that our rebellion against God and against His Word could ever result in anything other than complete failure. Satan's deceits promise man just as Satan promised Eve that our sin and our rebellion against God will free us from His authority and will allow us to be um, autonomous over our own domains rather than be stuck under God. Of course, these things are foolishness. But Satan has always been a liar and a deceiver from the beginning. So let us never think that man is not responsible. The sin and rebellion of mankind are not imposed from an external source. They are self-imposed through rebellious hearts. But Satan deceives our rebellious hearts. He uh, helps us along, you might say, into thinking that we can succeed. And so it is that in the ministry we face two foes. We face our own sinful flesh and we face the deceit of Satan that deceives man sinful flesh into even deeper acts of violence, hatred, rebellion. And though Paul's endeavors to personally be with this church had been in vain to this point, hindered by Satan, these past two chapters have been chapters of joy. Because though Paul had not been there, he had heard firsthand the testimony of the church that their faith indeed rested not in a love for Paul or in the words of Paul or the actions of Paul, but their faith rested in their love for God, which they received by faith after they heard the word of God by the mouth of Paul and saw the testimony of Paul and the fruit of the Spirit in that testimony. And so they followed not Paul, but they followed the Lord Jesus Christ and they did so even unto death. And Paul says in verse 19 that this is his hope. This is his joy. That this is his crown of rejoicing. Not everyone gets to stand up here every week and preach the Word of God. Not everyone in the church 
is necessarily active discipling, though perhaps any of you should be. But the joy of ministry comes not from all the menial and difficult and burdensome tasks that are asked of us. comes not from all of the self-sacrifices. But the joy comes when we see that those sacrifices and those menial tasks and those little things that we do week in and week out, day in and day out for the Lord or for this church or for the ministries that we have bear fruit in the hearts of the hearers. Paul's hope and joy and very peak of his rejoicing is that one day they will stand before God, not him, but them, not offended in God and ashamed of his name, but having remained faithful to God's word in all things. Why? Because Paul was a minister of the gospel and the very deepest desire of his heart was that men and women would receive the gospel of Jesus Christ and obey it with all their hearts. Would to God that would be our desire as well. And the success of Paul's ministry and by extension, the success of the Thessalonian believers was rooted in the fact that they first accepted the Word of God. And as we close this evening, let's apply this in three ways. There are three questions that I'd like us to ask. Question number one, are you willing to receive the Word of God with gladness so that it can work in you? In the spiritual battle, the spiritual battle is won or lost in the hearts of God's people. The spiritual battle is won or lost in the degree to which God's people are willing to yield to the Word of God and to help others through discipleship and through prayer, through intercession, to as well yield to the Word of God. God works in those who are workable. It is my responsibility to get the Word of God into your ears. It is your responsibility to do something with what you hear. Paul went to Thessalonica. Paul preached the Word of God. Paul sacrificed every personal liberty that he had. Paul did everything he could to show in his life to make sure not just his words, but his life were exemplary as to the truth of the message of the Word of God. But the reason why Paul could not be sure when he left Thessalonica that these young um, professing believers would, uh, that their faith would take root, that they would remain strong in the face of adversity, which is a clear sign of those who have accepted Christ as their Savior, is because until he saw the fruit, regardless of what he said, regardless of what he did, until he saw the fruit of them choosing, of them being responsible to be submissive enough to God's Word to allow it to change the way they live their lives, Paul just plain couldn't know. By God's grace, your preacher's not the best preacher, but by God's grace, every week the Bible is opened and God's Word is read. Not even during the sermon alone, but before the sermon or after the sermon as well. And whether it's because of me or in spite of me, let me just ask you. Do you come here every week willing to obey what, what the Bible will tell you? 
God's Word is powerful. It can convict, it can convince, it can change lives, it can change perception, but the spiritual joys and blessings found therein are reserved for those who will receive it by faith. Do you come every week willing to receive not your pastor's ideas, not your pastor's opinions, though sometimes your pastor puts his ideas and his opinions in, but are you willing to take the Word of God for what it says and obey it? In the ministry, the spiritual battle begins there. As you minister, whatever it might be, not even talking about preaching, teaching inherently, ministry, the little things, the big things, it begins with a willingness to obey God's Word. Second question. Are you willing to identify with the martyrs on account of your belief and obedience? The legacy of the Christian faith is in many ways a legacy of martyrdom. The Jews killed the prophets. They killed Christ. They killed the early Christians. The Romans killed the Christians, used them for sport in their Colosseums, torturing them in numerous ways. The Catholic Church killed Christians under the guise of heresy. Many of the Reformers killed Christians under the guise of heresy as well, particularly the Calvinists. And today, Islam beheads those who will not renounce the name of Christ. There's no way to prepare for such events, nor can we know exactly how one would react in such an event. But the Bible does say very clearly that clearly that God's people are not ashamed to suffer persecution for God's Son. And anyone who would flee from persecution is not worthy of Christ. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus Christ says in verses 37 through 39, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it. He that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Whether that loss is simply a loss to the flesh or whether it's legitimate loss, Jesus Christ said, they who, do not, who are not willing to follow in my footsteps are not worthy of me. And as we fight this spiritual battle, it begins with receiving the Word of God, but it must also bridge the gap into commitment to God. Commitment to the death to God and to His Word. Jesus Christ would say in Matthew sixteen twenty four through 26 If any man will come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for My sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? What can we possibly refuse from Christ, be it our very lives, knowing that He has given His very life for us? What an honor to be accounted among the faithful who have yielded all the promises that this world gives in order to receive the spiritual promises of the Most High God. And so in this spiritual battle, as we fight not just our flesh, but as we fight our enemy, we fight our enemy as it pertains to whether or not we are willing to trust God's Word. Satan said to Eve, Yea, hath God said. 
as we fight this spiritual battle and we fight Satan and we fight this external enemy, we fight him on the grounds of yieldedness. How much are we willing to give? And as we fight this spiritual battle, the question is, are we willing to fight for the souls of men? If we truly saw the lives we live as a battle between light and darkness, how would that change the way we minister to others? Every service in a military battle is important. Whether you're the man on the front lines, whether you're a part of the supply line, whether you're the cook, whether you're the medic keeping uh, uh, your soldiers healthy, every single part that's played is important. How would that battle play out if those support positions weren't there? How would a battle play out if the cooks and the engineers packed it in and went home? How would things change in the way we ministered if we realized that everyone has a part to play in this spiritual battle against light and darkness? What if every time you visited family you saw it as a spiritual battle, not against them, but as the lies that hold them captive? What if every time you go to the grocery store or the restaurant, you saw a spiritual battle going on in the lives of the people around you? What if your joy was no longer found in the carnal pleasures of earthly delight, but in seeing men or women come to know the Savior and be discipled into another warrior for God? Satan is hindering, he's confusing, he's discouraging, he fights tooth and nail, but... 1 John 4, 4 says, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. What if your urgency to see people saved meant that your personal freedoms and your personal pleasures and your personal priorities took a back seat to the priorities of, of this church or of, to your own ministry in the community? What if your desire to see men and women discipled into uh, proper believers, into um, proper followers of Jesus Christ meant that you set aside the time that you have put into your own pleasures and you dedicated that time to discipling someone who could really use it? Are you willing to see the battle for what it is? Are you willing to see the battle for the souls of men? How would it change the way you lived if we did? Paul was a man of great passion. He rejoiced in that the church of Thessalonica followed him into obedience. He rejoiced that they received the word, not as the words of men, but as the words of God. They won the first part of the spiritual battle. They received the word of God. Then he saw as they won the second part of that spiritual battle, as they were willing to identify themselves to completely sell out at any cost to God. And then he rejoiced again. that as they fought this battle, that he was confident that one day he would see them standing before God. His joy. His glory. Because they would be there. Because they loved God. Because they had received. May we 
share Paul's passion. May we share Paul's passion to do the same, to fight the fight of faith, not for our own glory, not for our own recognition, but for the glory of God and for the pleasure of God. Let's pray.